Father, we come before you again in Jesus' name. And uh, God, we ask you to be with us now. I mean, we, we've heard from your word and we've responded with songs and we've responded with prayers. Father, and now we want to hear from your word again, uh, God, and we pray that you, uh, by your spirit, would help us to respond, even now in our hearts, with joy in your goodness, Father, with conviction from your spirit, God. Uh, we just pray that you would work that in us, Lord, and uh, we pray that, uh, you know, that there's just no way that I can say words good enough to change someone's heart, and so if there's going to be anything good that happens right now, we need you to find. We pray you'd work, and we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we, um, as we all know, we live in a world where different people have different experiences in a lot of different ways. I mean, if you just look around, if you even just think about the people that maybe you greeted beside you when we uh, greet one another on Sunday mornings, we have different experiences in one another. We grew up different ways, and even the way we experience some things now are different. And all throughout the world, not just in our church, not just in our country, all throughout the world, there are things, because we have different experiences and we're in different places, that are well within reach for some people and that are really out of reach for others. You know, so justice is often out of reach for oppressed people groups, and good education is out of reach for poor neighborhoods, and clean water is out of reach with people in, in poor countries. And that's just a reality of life. There's some things that are within reach for others and are out of reach uh, for others. And one phrase that we hear a lot in our country is the American dream, which I think uh, is just the most American thing possible. But we have in mind the American dream, not just any dream, the American dream. And it's this idea that, you know, we're all created equal and we all, you know, if you just work hard and you do your best, You'll be able to provide for your family, and you'll be happy, and you'll have two cars and a nice fence and a dog and well-behaved children. It's the American dream. And uh, the truth is, even though that's kind of what's sold and that's what's promised, when we think about the United States, that just hasn't been the case for everybody historically or even now. Uh, one example I, I read about this is uh, Malcolm X. We're familiar with him, the, the civil rights activist. And whenever he spoke, he was very blunt and provocative and insightful, and I want you to listen to what he said about the American dream, because based on his experience, he clearly felt like this dream wasn't for him, and went so far as to say, I guess I'm not even an American then. This is what he says, and the quote should be on the screen so you can follow. He says, no, I'm not an American. I'm one of the 22 million black people who are the victims of Americanism. One of the 22 million black people who are the victims of democracy, nothing but disguised hypocrisy. So I'm not standing here speaking to you as an American or a patriot or a flag saluter or a flag waver. No, not I. I'm speaking as a victim of this American system, and I see America through the eyes of a victim. I don't see any American dream. I see an American nightmare. That's what he thought when he thought of the American dream. He felt like there were things that were well within reach for some that were way out of reach for him. And it wasn't just his experience or black people's experience. There's a, a professor that I follow on Twitter who's always talking about and trying to get people to be aware of right now poor whites in rural places who things are well out of reach. The American dream isn't within reach for them, but no one really seems to care because no one thinks about them when they begin to think of people who things are out of reach for. Or a last example I'll give. Years and years ago, I, I was in Chicago, 
and I caught a cab, and the cab driver was really friendly, and we were talking. And, uh, you know, he had an accident. I, I, I didn't recognize him. I asked him where he was from. He told me where he was from, and we talked. I asked him why he came to the States. And he said, I wanted to come to the United States for the American dream. I wanted that money. I wanted that family. I wanted all of that. And he said, and at first I got it because I had a business that was going well. And then he said, the bottom dropped out of it. I lost all my money, and I have none of it now. So here's someone who came for the American dream, had it within his grasp, and then lost it. It used to be within reach for him, but now it felt out of reach. And so in the midst of a world like ours where so many things feel out of reach and people have access to different opportunities and privileges, there is something that's much greater that we all can hope for and reach after, and it's something that's never out of reach for anybody, no matter where they are in their situation. The greatest dream that any of us could really ever strive for, much greater than an American dream that can last 70 years tops, this thing that we can hope for, strive for, yearn for, that's available to all of us is the salvation that comes from God alone. We often buy into a lie that salvation from God is something that we just have to strive and work really hard. So nearly impossible to obtain that it's not even really worth trying. Like, I ain't going to be like that anyway, so I might as well just do my thing. And thinking like that is really unfortunate for us because salvation is something that every single one of us needs. There is nobody that doesn't need salvation. And here's the thing. If we understood how close it was to us, how obtainable it is, how near it is, it would change the way we think about relating to God. And it would change the way that we talk to other people about this God. So Paul is going to talk to us about this in, in our passage in Romans 10, and he's going to show us that salvation is available to all, and it's not only obtainable, it's close, it's near. He uses real intimate language. So turn to Romans 10 if you have your Bibles, and if not, it'll be on the screen. And as you turn, I want to give you a little bit of recap from last week. Uh, we, we did uh, verses 1 to 4 last week, and the main point there was that chasing righteousness on your own will only keep you from it. You know, Paul is talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters who tried to pursue righteousness in their own strength and talks about the righteousness that comes from God. And just, just in case, just for the sake of defining terms, righteousness is this, uh, it's a holiness, a purity, a, a, a godliness, a goodness. And Paul is talking about being seen as holy and perfect and pure before God himself. Right, so listen to what he says in uh, Romans 10 verse 5. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's word. Paul's going to convince us right here that salvation is never out of reach. 
no matter who you are, where you live, what your life situation is, salvation is absolutely never out of reach. And so since we sometimes think of it as being out of reach, I just want to point to the three things about salvation that we see in this text. Number one, you don't have to go get it. It talks about salvation from God, a relationship with God, being forgiven. You don't have to go get it. I happen to be someone who uh, is naturally kind of, can I say this nicely, lazy. I'm trying to say it in a way that doesn't make me sound irresponsible, but I don't think there's a way around it. I naturally, uh, you know, if I can choose between doing something or not doing it, I'd rather not. Just in general. That's extreme, but uh, so like when I was in college, I really loved delivery, food, because if it meant that not only do I not have to cook, which I can't, I don't even have to get in my car and go nowhere. I can just be doing what I'm doing. I can make a call. I look up and it's at my door. Now, I I had probably had Domino's several times per week when I was in college, not only because I liked mediocre pizza, which I did, but also because I just love the convenience of having to do nothing, but it just shows up at my door. There would be pizza boxes stacked. And uh, when I just thought about, I was like, either I'm going to do this or I'm just not going to eat because I don't feel like putting any effort into this. And the thing is, that's how a lot of people think about salvation from, from Santa, a relationship with God. They think, man, that sounds like a lot of work. A lot of work that I don't think I can do because I know I'm broken. I'm not perfect like them church people. So if it means I have to do all of this work to become this perfect person, all this stuff I like, I have to get rid of, all these friends, I might as well not even bother with it. But Paul says something very, very different. The good news is we don't have to go get salvation. It's not our work to do and to strive for. It's something that Jesus has done for us. And so this is why Paul starts in verse 5 saying, you know, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live with them. He's he's picking up right after verse 4 when he said that Christ is the the end of the law for all who believe. He's saying after Jesus came and, and he offered us righteousness through faith, we no longer have to bear that burden of meeting God's perfect standard on our own, right? So he's saying the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And what he's doing is he's quoting from uh, Leviticus 18, uh, 5, where uh, uh, Moses uh, gives God's word saying, you shall keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And in that passage, God is pointing out to his people, Israel, his chosen people, this nation of people who he has a special relationship with, He's pointing out to them, if you do what I say, you'll enjoy life better and longer in the land I promised to you. That's what God is saying right there. And what Paul is sad about is that he feels like his Jewish brothers and sisters have taken that to mean if I obey God's commands, if I just try really hard to do that, then I can meet his standard all by myself. So Paul is going to take that and he's going to contrast that. Right. And one area where they're right about that righteousness, if you were to live an absolutely perfect life, never sin one time, perfectly righteous, then you absolutely would get eternal life. But that is hypothetical isn't even a word for that. You know, hypothetical is like if you made it to the NBA, which is possible, but you just never would. This isn't like that. Like it's actually never going to happen for any of us. 
right? And so what Paul's going to keep driving home is if you want to do that, if you want to try to meet God's standard based on the law, don't just try to pick some you want to keep. You got to keep all of them at all times, forever. If that's how you want to meet God's standard, it's not going to go well for you, which is why he's so uh, grieved that they're trying to do it that way. Righteousness based on the law, what he's calling it, is just that keeping God's law perfectly and receiving eternal life based on your good works, something that is not a real thing that exists, right? The only person who's ever lived a perfectly righteous life was the Lord Jesus. And the good thing is he's called us to know him and he's offered to give that to us. But have you ever, you know, thought about how impossible it would be for broken people like us to keep God's law with perfection for an entire lifetime? I mean, when you just think about your life for a second, right? I mean, we are made in the image of God. We are beautiful creatures, the crown of God's creation, but we're broken too. It's not like the rest of creation got broken and we've just been all perfect and, and together. I mean, we were sinners. We rebelled against God. You know, when somebody talks crazy to us, we're provoked to talk crazy back to them, right? All right, when someone walks by who looks good, we're prov- we often lust after them because of these desires in our heart. We hurt other people. I mean, just think about the news you've heard in the past few weeks and tell me that humanity is not broken deep inside. What God tells us to do, we don't do, and we do stuff he told us not to do. And even when we do what he tells us to do, we often do it for the wrong reasons. Like, I'm a serve. Don't want no girl to know I'm a servant. Just serving, you know, serving Jesus. God bless you. God bless you. Let me know if you want to serve with me later on Friday night. Like we, even when we do the right things, we do them for the wrong reason a lot. Not only that, we even think wrongly, right? You don't just do angry things. You often think angry things. Even our feelings are off. Sometimes they are horrible injustices that we're just desensitized to. I mean, we are really far off from the mark. And, and I don't say that just to make us all sad, but just to see, point out why Paul is saying, trying to, you know, meet God's perfect standard based on you following his commands. You're free to try, but by the time you've read that, you already failed a long time ago. There's no chance for us. And just as a side note, this should give us a deep, deep appreciation for the perfect righteousness of God. That God who's existed from eternity past, he's just always been around, has never even had an inkling of a sinful action or even an impure motive. Not even for a moment. Right? God is light and in him there's no darkness. You, you couldn't make it a few minutes into our past without finding sin. You could comb through God's words and his works and his actions and his thoughts and his feelings for an entire year. You would find nothing but perfect righteousness. You could do that for a thousand years back, for a million years back, throughout all of eternity. Since God has always existed, he's never done, thought, or felt anything but absolutely perfect righteousness. He's incapable of ever thinking, doing, or feeling the exact right thing. That is God. Praise be to God, the holy, righteous king of the universe. That should give us an appreciation for that, that we can't make it 30 seconds without sin. And how holy must God be? And then I want you to realize that that's the standard we would have to meet, to be righteous on our own. And you see why Paul is saying, hey, it's not possible 
And this is one of the things that I love about Christianity and the Bible is it's real. We're not out here trying to pretend like we're not broken people. Like we are. We have issues. And so when people, uh, the way they perceive the churches as a group of people who pretend like they don't have issues, that's when we've distorted the gospel and we've forgotten it. Now, we're a community of people who know we don't have it all together. That's why we trust in Jesus. The righteousness of God cannot be obtained by us. And again, I don't say that to discourage you, but to help you understand what Paul is saying so we can be real. We can't act like we can do enough good stuff to make it to him. And sometimes we think, like, if we just do a few good things, we can cancel out the bad things. Like, we can, like, bribe God with church attendance. Like, God, if you'll just look the other way on the past 20 years, I'll go to church a few times. What good judge does that? God is a perfect judge. Who lets people off for heinous crimes because they went to a service a few times? Not, not the holy, perfect God of the universe. If we're going to be righteous before him, it can't be based on ours can be based on ours. So Paul contrasts that righteousness based on the law with righteousness by faith, which we talked about last week. You know, if we want to be seen as perfect before God, it would have to come through faith in Christ and the righteousness that he gives us. Jesus lived that perfect life and he'll offer it to us. Right? And here's the thing. When we think about having to go get our salvation, we often think of God as far off. And one of the amazing things in Scripture is God is really big, and he is far off. He is holy other. He's in a high and holy place that we can't even ascend to. But Scripture also talks about him as very close and near and caring, and that he comes after us. And here's the thing. If we leave off that second part that God is near to us and he's present and he cares, we are always going to think about relating to him the wrong way because we'll think we have to find our way to him. We don't have to go get it. God is near to us. And Paul's going to give us beautiful rest in these next verses. Verse 6, he says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, that is the word of faith we proclaim. So Paul's talking about this other righteousness, the righteousness based on faith. It's given to us by putting our faith in Christ. So he's talking as if righteousness is a person. So if righteousness was a person, what would a righteousness that's by faith be saying right now? It sounds a little cryptic. So uh, we'll walk through what he's doing here. But the main thing that righteousness by faith is saying is don't think it depends on your striving because you can try, but you won't. So it, what he's doing is he's quoting Deuteronomy 30. Uh, where Moses is talking to God's people about his law, and he's basically saying, don't think you have to ascend into the heavens or go down into the bottom of the sea in order to, to have God's word. It's near you, it's in your mouth, and it's in your hearts. And you can actually hear and obey these commands, right? God has actually given them to you. Now, God never said you can earn eternal life, but God has given you his commands. And what Paul does is he picks that up, to help us as we think about how we're going to relate to God. And he says, the righteous says, don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. That is bring Christ down. He's saying, it's not like Jesus is up in the heavens and you have to literally like levitate and ascend physically to go up to the heavens and go to Jesus' neighborhood and knock on his heavenly door and throw rocks at his sovereign window. Like, hey, Jesus, can you, 
come out and save? Can you come down to earth and our souls need saving? Please, I mean, what do you need from me? And bring them back down in order to receive salvation. He's saying, you don't have to do that. That's not what God told us to do. And then he says, you know, don't say who will descend into the abyss. That is, bring Christ up from the dead. It's not as if Jesus never resurrected and we have to go down to the land of the dead and carry him back up here with us in order to receive salvation. Jesus already rose from the grave. Saying we don't have to go get it. Jesus came to us. He came down from heaven of his own volition, and he died for our sins. And then he died, and he got up from the grave by his own power. We don't have to do this. Christ has done it. And as strange as it sounds for you to levitate and ascend into heaven to bring Jesus down or go into the grave and to bring Jesus up, it's just as strange to think that you could ever meet God's holy standard by yourself. And that's what he's trying to communicate. Your striving is not what's going to accomplish this. It's going to be what Christ has done. So we think sometimes that God is like, hey, there's a burning building. You got to run in there and get your salvation. That's not what God has done. Instead, there is a burning building, but we're in it, and the door is blocked. And he sends Jesus in to come in and get us. That's more what it's like. right? We cannot do this on our own. Jesus came to get us. So please never think of anything that you do, even as a Christian, as like going to get to God and then begging him to help us. God has come near, and he's given us means. So as we sing and as we pray and as we preach, it's not because we have to beg God to come near. He's already come near. He's already been gracious, and we know he's with us. Paul is saying it's near us. It's in front of our face. We can touch it. We can feel it. We can taste it. We can see it. It's as close to you as the person sitting right next to you. It's right there. And Paul is beautifully pointing out to us, you don't have to do the impossible yourself. Christ already did it, right? And he's offering to give it to us freely. And that's what he did on the cross when he took our penalty for sin. And so I hope you understand on the cross, Jesus got treated like he lived our life. That's why he died, bore sin. And we get treated like we live Jesus' life when we trust him, right? It's like we switch criminal records, we have a clean rap sheet, and Jesus took the penalty for everything that we did. And that, that's the amazing good news of the gospel. Quick note on what God did, how gracious he is. There was conflict that we caused, and God could have been like, forget them, but God graciously came down to earth, and he initiated conflict resolution. What do we do when we got conflict with somebody who offends us? We write them off forever. It don't even have to be a big deal. But he ain't even text me back. I'm done, right? That's not what God has done. God went to great lengths, even sending his son to die on the cross for us. And that can be a word to us about how we seek to resolve conflict, right? Right, if we want to be like Christ, if we want to love like Jesus, there are going to be times when somebody's offended you and the, there will be no reconciliation unless you initiate in resolving conflict. And God has called you to be like Christ in that way. And I want to say that especially to husbands. I want you to lead in your home in resolving conflict and pursuing your wife, whether you're in the wrong or whether she is. Be like Christ. Pursue, right, and, and try to resolve that, that conflict. So righteousness may be out of reach for us, but salvation never is, right? The righteousness... You know, it may be out of reach for us to achieve it and to do it ourselves, but salvation and the righteousness from God never is.
So some of us may say, okay, so I'm not supposed to levitate into heaven or descend down into the grave. What am I supposed to do to get the salvation that's supposedly near? Number two, you have to receive it. You have to receive it. And I purposely use the word like receive, a passive word. You have to receive it. Y'all remember um, pay phones? Not only pay phones, but collect calls. So there's, I, I think if I remember correctly, um, there, are, there were two kinds. There was a kind where you just don't have the money to pay phone and you just 1-800-COLLECT and then it like charges the person you call, which is very disrespectful. Because uh, <laughs> it's not like you can call before and get their permission because you call it right now, you know. But it was another kind where you could have like a card where it's like your money on it and you call in it. And so in that case, if somebody collect calls me, and it's like, hey, you have a collect call from your broke friend, right? And, and all I have to do is receive it. Like, I don't have to pay for it. They already pay for it. All I have to do is receive it. I answer the phone. I can say yes or no. And depending on who it is, I may say yes or no. I may pretend like I'm not there. But this is what salvation is like. We're not the ones who have to do the pain. Somebody's already paid. And really, the offer is being made. And what God has called us to do is receive it. I mean, I can't think of an easier way to get to God than Jesus comes and he does it for us. I mean, Jesus literally did all the righteousness for us, and he's handed it to us. And it's after we trust in Christ that God works in us and makes us look more and more like him. But that's not the earning. I mean, that's the fruit of what Jesus has done. So in what sense, then, is salvation near to us? And what does this receiving look like? Look at what Paul says in verse 9. He says, and you, you hear how he applies the heart and mouth. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So here's the thing. God hasn't called us to call out to him with stuff that we don't have, with tools we don't have, like perfect purity and holiness. Instead, he told us to use two things that all of us have, a heart and a mouth. The heart being the center of our whole self, where all our thoughts and our actions and our feelings come from, and our mouth, the thing we use to express what's in our hearts. Right? And so a lot of us are familiar with Romans 10.9. If you were ever in a church that did any evangelism training and you did some Romans role, you probably were encouraged to use this verse when talking to people about Jesus, because it's so clear about what it means to, to really come in a relationship with him, faith and confession. But what is faith? Sometimes we confuse what faith is. We think faith is just like wishing or hoping. Like, man, I have faith, you know, that the uh, Celtics are going to win the NBA finals next year. It's like that is based on nothing. There's no chance of that happening, right? Or I have faith that, if sermon is going to be really short, there's no chance, right? It's not, it's not based on any factual evidence. When Scripture talks about faith, the kind of faith Scripture is talking about is believing God based on what he said. So I'm not saying, oh, I just got faith that I'm going to be a millionaire. God didn't tell me I was going to be a millionaire in his word anywhere. I have faith that God will keep his promises that he actually gave. Faith is believing God will do what he said he would, taking him at his word, depending on him, leaning on him, standing on him, trusting in him. That's what faith is, taking him at his word. My wife is very trusting. She takes me at my word. And because I'm a bad person, I take advantage of it sometimes. Because, you know, I've built up a track record of being trustworthy, and so I abuse it by playing pranks on her from time to time. And uh, 
so far it hasn't damaged our marriage too much, but I think I'm going to just move on to a different topic right now. My kids, the better example, it doesn't get me in trouble. My kids, <laughs> I can tell my kids anything and they will believe me because they're so small. They don't really know anything, but I eat and you're my dad. That's pretty much all they know. And so I could say, son, see the sun right there? That's a basketball. And it's waiting for a basketball game to pop off. And he'd be like, man, that's crazy. <laughs> and he would believe it. And then probably that night he'd be like, dad, I want to pray for the big basketball game. He doesn't know anything. But you know what that is? That's faith. Right? My son doesn't know everything, but he knows this guy seems to know everything. So when he tells me something, I believe him. And that's what, I mean, that's what faith is. That's, that's taking God at his word. Even when it doesn't, even when we don't understand it, we really don't know everything. We really know very little. God, on the other hand, is omniscient, knows all things. We know the little gap of time we spend on earth. God knows all of eternity, not only the past and the present, but forever, the future. I mean, so faith is taking God at his word, believing him, letting him call the shots. Whatever you say goes, and that's that's faith. And specifically, the kind of believing, the content of this faith in this passage is what we're to believe is that Jesus raised from the dead, that after Jesus paid for our sins, he rose. And when he rose, it was like the receipt showing that our debt has been paid. You know, you get a receipt and you're like, okay, I paid for this, paid for this, paid for this, paid too much for that. I see what I paid for. It's proof that I paid. When Jesus rose from the grave, that resurrection is like a receipt. And when he paid, this is why we don't have to do a bunch of good works to earn it. There's nothing left on our tab. Right? There are no IOUs. There's not a sin debt collector that's going to call us. Our stuff's not going to get repossessed. We don't have any sin loans that we just defer, but they're going to show up eventually. Jesus paid it all. He paid all of the debt in full. And when he got up, that was proof that he killed death. That's that's what the the content of the faith is. Christ died and rose. In a confession, he says, believe in your hearts, that's internally, and our mouth externally. Confess. What's in our hearts comes out of our mouths, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says this. And so when Paul says confess, he's not talking about empty words, just saying stuff. He's talking about rock-solid faith that's expressed through our words. Confessing that Jesus is Lord. He's the ruler of all, the son of God, the master, the, the boss. That there's no such thing as a fair fight against Jesus because he created whoever's trying to fight him. That Jesus is Lord, right? That's what we confess with our mouth. And we don't just do that individually. I mean, we, we did that. We've done that as a church today. You know, saying, hallelujah, you've won the victory. Death could not hold you down. We'll confess that together as a church. And when we pray and preach and when someone gets baptized, this is a public confession that Jesus rose from the dead. And I believe in that, Jesus. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're publicly confessing Christ died and he rose. This confession is proof of the faith that's in us. And here's one thing that I think all of us will struggle with from time to time is we love to believe in our hearts and don't really want to confess with our mouth very much sometimes, especially around people who we think will disapprove. One of my questions for you is in your daily life with your friends and your classes or at your job, would it surprise people to know that you believe Jesus is Lord? Now, would that be a surprise to them, the people that know you best? Is there ever a time when you confess from your mouth that Jesus is the Lord of Lords? Right? Is that ever something that shows up? Or on the other hand, do you live in such a way that it would surprise somebody because your life contradicts that profession? 
I think those are good questions to, to ask ourselves as we think about believing and confessing. And we can't really have one without the other. Confession without real faith is just empty and false, right? Faith without confession is weak and insincere. They're two sides of the same coin. And here's the thing. We can fool people with our words. I can tell somebody I love them, I trust them, and they won't know the difference. God knows. He sees your hearts. He knows your thoughts. This confessing and believing are two sides of the same coin. And that's why in verse 10 he goes on to say, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes. Why is faith such a big deal? Faith is saying, I know I don't have it, and I trust you to do it, right? I mean, it's just the simple thing of I don't have it together, and I believe that you do, and I'm going to cling to you. And that's the way that God has decided that he wants to unite people to his son and give them the righteousness of his son. And what he says is everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him won't be put to shame. Right, That faith on the last day is going to have a big impact. Don't think we just have faith and that's how we're saved and we're forgiven of our sins and faith doesn't matter. No, no. Faith is not only the way you're forgiven of your sins. It's also the way you fight your sins. Anytime we sin, we're believing a lie, right? We're believing a lie that lust is better for us than God's plans for our sexuality. We're believing the lie when we lie to somebody, that it's better to lie than to be honest. And the way that we fight those sins is by believing God's word, listening to his word and fighting to believe him. Faith is part of your everyday fight to follow Jesus. And he says, if you believe, you won't be put to shame, meaning there will never be a day when you're embarrassed on the last day. Like, I believed in him and he didn't come through. Right? Or I believed in him and it didn't really get me anywhere with God. Or here are all these uh, people who never trusted Christ and they're laughing in my face because I trusted him for no reason. He says, no, no, if you believe in Jesus, you'll never be put to shame. He keeps his word. We can think of so many instances where we believed people and they let us down. Christ will never let us down. There's not an instance where he doesn't come through and do what he said that he would do. Salvation is always within reach. Right? We don't have to go get it. We have to receive it. Last thing, we all have to come the same way. Notice he said, everyone who believes will not be put to shame. We all got to come the same way. He'll continue on that in the next verses. Before I read those, I just want to say this. There's some people that not Christianity for different reasons, stuff they don't like about it, even specifically, even some of the religious groups in our neighborhood, uh, you know, uh, black Muslims, Hebrew Israelites who will point to Jesus and say, that's white man's religion, that's a white man's God. That's for white people. My Jesus that I know in scripture is the Lord of all. There are lots of problems with that. One, European people didn't make that up. So just you could just read a little bit and that's, we could take care of that. Now, of course, Christianity had been used by some to oppress black people. That's a, that's a very real thing. But we're talking about the, not talking about whether or not people can abuse things. We're talking about what it is. Jesus is the Lord of all. And if we're going to be saved, we all have to come the same way. There's not a way that white people come and a way that black people come. We all got to come the same way, right? The only righteousness available to us that's going to be given to us since we can't do it on our own, the only one who offers us that righteousness is, of course, the Lord Jesus because he's the only one who has it to offer. 
Romans 10. I'm going to start reading uh, the last two verses, 12 and 13. But there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, we know that Paul, as he's writing this, he's thinking of his, you know, family in the flesh, the, the Jewish brothers and sisters who haven't trusted in Christ. And he's making it clear that just because they had a special relationship with God in redemptive history, just because they were his chosen people, doesn't mean that God is going to give them a pass because we all have to come the same way. There's no ancestry. There's no family tree. There's no historic importance that makes God overlook sin and abandon his commitment to righteousness. Right? So whether Jew or non-Jew, you've got to trust in Jesus, and that's the only way we'll have the kind of righteousness that gives us eternal life, and it's the same for us. A lot of us sometimes think that because our parents were Christians or we just grew up around church a lot, that we're good. And people don't normally think that consciously, like, yeah, my parents' faith got me. Or, but we, just, we were just always around church, and we just assume we're Christians. We just assume we're getting in. And Paul is saying, no, it's not a religious background or church attendance that saves you. It's not Bible studies that saves you. It's not walking up an aisle that saves you. It's not praying a prayer that saves you. It's not even baptism that saves you. None of those mean anything if they're not the product of sincere trust in Christ. The confessing and believing that he talked about. And we cannot assume that because we're around church or Jesus in the Bible that we are Christian. No one's born a Christian. None of us are. Salvation is not like your ethnicity or your eye color. Like, I was born on December 17th in the morning. I had um, brown eyes and uh, I had Christianity. That's not a thing that happens. We're not born Christians. Even church kids have to be converted to Christ. Everybody does. And Paul's making clear, hey, y'all shouldn't think you have a pass. Right? Righteousness is the requirement for eternal life. And so Paul is saying background doesn't get you there. For me, I thought I was a Christian before I was, not really because of background, but I just thought that when I was five and when I was uh, in children's church and the children's pastor, after we did what other kids do in children's church, color pictures of animals, um, he was like, hey, you know, do you want to go to heaven you know, where you'll be happy forever and you know, get to hang out with Jesus and just live forever? And there's going to be animals and dinosaurs there no pain forever or do you want to go to hell where you're burned forever I'm like I'm going to go with the first one it felt good I like that one but here's the thing that's an exaggeration it wasn't like that but it was this thing like hey if you want to go to heaven repeat this prayer after me and so I repeated a prayer the sinner's prayer just saying hey I've sinned you know I believe in you Jesus and you know people told me okay you're a Christian and I did a few more times to make sure it worked because I didn't feel anything. But here's the thing. Me just saying those words after a pastor had no effect on the state of my soul because I didn't even understand the gospel. I didn't know what I was saying. They were empty words. Confession without that real faith means nothing. right? And it wasn't until as I started going to youth group at that same church and the youth pastors preaching the gospel, stuff starts to click. God is holy. I'm not. Christ is paid for sins. right? Repent and believe grace of Jesus. I'm not trying to earn my own way in. Christ has paid for me. Man, it's not until those things click that I really 
actually trusted in Christ and confessed that he's Lord, right? So I just want to encourage us not to bank on anything other than faith in Christ as our assurance that we know him, right? Now, Scripture tells us once we have that faith, there are other things to look at too, right? The way we love people, whether our fruit shows up in our life, whether that fruit of the Spirit is there. But that doesn't begin with anything other than faith in the Lord Jesus. We all have to come the same way no matter who we are, that faith in Christ. And here's why, what he says right here, even if people are different ethnicities, Jew or Greek, even if we come from different places and our sins are different, the Lord is still the same. He said there's one Lord who's Lord of all, and that Lord is Jesus. And that's the basis of our unity as a church, that there's just one Lord of all of us, and that's what we're fighting for. And so, you know, it's good for us to fight for that unity that Christ has already purchased for us, to have conversations like we had Wednesday around race and justice things, right? Because all of us have that same Lord, and we, we can only know him this one way. And God doesn't play favorites the way that we do. Now, this doesn't mean, like people have tried to tell me in the last couple of weeks, that when you trust Christ, your ethnicity just kind of disappears, and you're just effectively now just, I don't know, a transparent person. You don't have an ethnicity anymore. And what I'm trying to say is, look, that Scripture nowhere tells me that when I trust Christ, I'm not a black man anymore. I'm still a black man. I look at my hair. I'm like, yeah, I am. I'm still black. <laughs> but what Scripture is going to tell me is I'm not primarily a black man. right? I'm primarily created in the image of God, and I'm a child of God. And as children of God, we have more in common than we have different. But we do have differences. It does us no good to ignore them. Instead, we want to do what we've been trying to do these past few weeks, right? To see those differences, to talk through them, love one another through that, understand each other's experience so we can bear one another's burdens. Differences should be celebrated often, too. I mean, they're just good things about our differences. Brown skin is a beautiful person made in the image of God. God made him that way. And fair skin, the same. You know, God has made differences. Even like when Bob preached and he asked, you know, had anybody been camping? And like three people raised their hand because black people don't go camping. That's, a, that's just a difference, and that's fine. But here's what happens. Here's what happens sometimes. I need to stick to my manuscript. Sometimes. I'm tired, sorry. Sometimes those differences, what happens is those are the things that divide us because instead of celebrating differences, working through differences, loving one another, even when it's awkward and hard, we just say, ah, it's too hard, it's different. Let's focus. God has called us to fight for the unity that Jesus purchased for us. And it's rooted in this, one Lord is Lord of all. And this equality before God is part of why racism is just foolish. And part of why when we are recipients of, of racism and prejudice, it can sting. But really, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what you think. That has no bearing on my eternity. right? When God sees us, we all got to come the same way exact same value and worth before him made in the image of God. I mean, this is why it's just foolish when you look through Scripture. So, you know, to drive home this point, we got to come the same way. It's no head starts. It's no trust funds. It's no systemic obstacles. The handout is the same one that all of us need, the righteousness from God accomplished by the Lord Jesus. All come in the same way. And that should change how we should have gospel with people too. Right? 
This should change the way we think about it. When we're sharing the gospel, we're not trying to manipulate people, right? Because what God does not want is just manipulating someone to just say something or just show up at church. God wants his repentance and faith, and it should change how we share with others because there's some people who we think, man, they're too far gone. But it's like people with sins you think are worse than yours, they got to come the same way you do. And salvation is just as near to them. If it's somebody who you think will never step foot in this church, that's okay. If they got a heart and a mouth, they can believe and confess Jesus. Tell them about him, right? These are the means that God has used. And when he says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, he means everyone. He means your unbelieving family members who are hard-hearted. He means the drug dealers in our neighborhoods. He means the Muslims and Hebrew Israelites in our neighborhoods. He means the sweet old lady who lives across the street from you. He really means everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that means that wherever we take the good news of Jesus, no matter where it is, if it's in India, if it's in our neighborhood, if it's in another country, they can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. It's not dependent on a particular place. If you have a heart and a mouth, you can trust Jesus where you are right now. And that's the final thing I want to say. If you're here today, you're not sure if you know Jesus. I want you to know there's not like a 10-step process, right? It's trusting in Christ. God's holy. We're not. Christ paid for it. He gives us his righteousness. We want to turn away from the stuff that Christ died for. We want to cling to Jesus. If you want to know more about what it means to become a Christian and to follow Jesus, what it means to have faith, please come talk to me or or Pastor John or uh, hospitality team. We'd love to talk to you about what it really means to trust in Christ. Salvation is never out of reach for anybody at any time. Unlike like what we talked about, that American dream. But we could talk about a variety of different people, people groups, people in tough situations who feel like it's out of reach, feel like they didn't have the same opportunities. It's too hard. That is never the case with the salvation that comes from God. It's near. And our God is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news. Thank you that we can rejoice over it together as a church. And, Father, we pray that you'd help us to rejoice in your righteousness throughout our weeks. And, God, we pray you give us grace to want to share that good news with others because it really is good news. Help us to trust it every day. And, Father, we pray that you help us to be a church centered around it, not self-righteous, but trusting in the righteous one. We ask this in Jesus' name.